Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Listen to these words. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word. Let's just pray briefly. Lord, would you speak? For we are listening. And Lord, when you speak, would you open our understanding? Would you unleash even our affections so that we would not just learn new things, but we would actually encounter you, Jesus, by your word. That we would see you. That we would worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The first time I felt homesick, and think of the first time you felt homesick. The first time I felt homesick was when I was 18 years old. I'm standing in the Wendy's parking lot in Oxford, Ohio. And my parents had just helped me move into my freshman dorm, Dodds Hall, if you're a Miami grad. And uh, we grabbed lunch at Wendy's. And uh, in the parking lot... We say our goodbyes, we give our hugs. My dad probably tried to say something profound. It might have been profound. I don't remember it. But what I do remember is hiding my distorted face that was becoming red with tears. Because as they drove off, for 18-year-old Joe Hack, they took with them my sense of security and stability and predictability. And I, it took 30 seconds for me to feel homesick. And I've learned since to live with that feeling. I don't long or yearn for uh, my Tahoe home, which I grew up in. And when I say Tahoe, I don't mean Lake Tahoe. I mean Tahoe Drive in Muncie, Indiana. <laughs> Just so you're not confused. Because if it were Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, I would actually long for that. But I, I don't long for home. I don't long for childhood. But there is still within me a, a longing for something deeper, something more eternal. I, I feel, to put it another way, spiritually homesick. Solomon would say that God has placed eternity in my heart, and so it doesn't matter where I am or what I do, there will always be a sickness or a longing for that eternal home or that eternal rest. I wonder if you're spiritually homesick too. Do you know the feeling? You don't have to be religious to be spiritually homesick, by the way. Uh, You may believe that all there is to the world is what you see, touch, and feel. You may think that all there is to this world is material, and yet I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to wager 
that as you walk throughout your life, you long for something deeper. The novelist Julian Barnes writes, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that might be you. That might be you. And let's be honest, if you're a follower of Jesus with us this morning, you might be spiritually homesick too. In fact, I think followers of Jesus struggle more with homesickness. Why? Because we follow Jesus by faith, not by sight. We don't see him like we see our bills or our boss or our house or our colleagues or our suffering or our sorrowful experiences. We don't feel him like the original disciples could, like we feel our depression, like we feel the wrongs that have been done against us. It seems like our life feels more tactile, more tangible, more present than Jesus himself. And so we're spiritually homesick, even as Christ followers. I mean, some days uh, he feels close. Other days, Jesus feels like a set of ideas or a set of doctrines. Not a living person. Some days we feel close, other days it feels like Wendy's parking lot. Like you're in Wendy's parking lot and there is a home somewhere and it's not where you are standing. That's spiritual homesickness. Have you ever uh, missed a Christmas gathering because of school or because you're out of town or because of work? Have you ever missed a Thanksgiving dinner or a gathering, a family reunion because you were away? Has anybody missed that? That feeling that you have? No matter how friendly your friends are, by bringing them into your into their table, you still have that yearning for something more. Does it remove the deepest longings of our hearts? And let's be honest, just for a minute, isn't that what life with God sometimes feels like? Maybe most of the time feels like? If we feel this way, I want you to think about how the disciples must have felt when Jesus said, I'm leaving you. I'm going. And in the chapter before uh, chapter 14, he says, actually, in 1333, I'm going and you can't come. I'm going somewhere you can't come. So think about that for a minute. They gave up everything to be with Jesus. And after 36 months, only 36 months, he says, I'm out. And you can't come. This disturbed them. We know this disturbed them because Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 14, do not let your hearts be disturbed. Your translation says troubled. But that word for troubled can be translated all kinds of ways. And it is in the New Testament. It's translated terrified. It's translated shaken. It's translated confused. It's translated frightened. It's translated fooled. They felt all of those things and probably more when Jesus said, I'm leaving you. Think of it. They were at home with Jesus. And now he's leaving them homeless. That's what it felt like. Well, Jesus sees this. He sees their disturbed heart and he says, you don't have to be disturbed. 
You don't have to be troubled in your homesickness. I see it. I see it, he says. But it does not have to mark you. And then he tells them why. One word. Believe. Do you see it? Verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe in me. By the way, Jesus is claiming divinity. He's saying, I am God. Rabbis would not say, believe in me. Mere human teachers would not say, believe in me. That would be blasphemy. Jesus says, believe in me. I think a better translation would be, trust in me. Because in our Western context, when we hear the word believe, we hear believe certain ideas. But the concept then was trust. Or better, surrender. Are you homesick? Surrender. That's Jesus' word to you this morning. Are you homesick? Is there a deep longing? And you can't put your finger on it? Okay, Jesus wants that longing to fuel your surrender. In particular, he has promises that he tells them. Things that they have to take by faith because they aren't, they're in a different part of the story than we are. And he gives them promises. And so he's saying, he's asking them and he's asking us to surrender to his promises. And I see three in the passage we just heard. The first is this. He's not abandoning you like it looks like. Or he has not abandoned you if it feels that way. What is he doing then? Well, the first thing he's doing is he's preparing home for you. He's preparing home for you. Look at verse 2. In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And so Jesus addresses their troubled hearts uh, with a potent and poetic image. Hospitality. Jesus wants us to view his perceived absence as the first step in divine hospitality. I'll say that again. Jesus wants you to feel his perceived absence as the first step in his divine hospitality. He has gone, but he has gone to prepare a place for you. That's different than just going, isn't it? That was a powerful image, hospitality, then. And I think it's a powerful image today. In fact, it might be even more powerful today. Because in the ancient context, Jesus spoke these words where hospitality was expected. In our current sort of enclaved suburban life, we don't know the names of our neighbors. But we know the cars they drive. And hospitality is rare. And loneliness is rampant. It's a potent image. It's a, it's a very potent image. God, Jesus is going to his father's house to prepare room for you. Edith Schaefer, she co-founded Labrie Fellowship with her husband as a safe place for people to explore the claims of Jesus. In fact, Labrie means the shelter. And she would write a lot uh, about the power of preparing a place in your home for others. 
She writes, I am sure that there is no place in the world where your message would not be enhanced by your making the place, whether it's tiny or large, hut or palace, orderly, artistic, and beautiful with some form of creativity, some form of art. Uh, They would never serve a meal, Edith and Francis, without having flickering candles and fresh flowers. That takes preparation. That is gratuitous. And I don't know about you, but I've tasted this kind of gratuitous hospitality. Have you? Have you tasted that before? Just had a glimpse of somebody preparing for you to come into their home? Have you had that before? I pray you have. I had it before. When I was in college, uh, my mentor who would lead our Bible study, he would prepare his house. He would stoke his fire. They would make a meal, and the meal would be placed beautifully on the table. And us college guys, unshaven, unshowered, unpolite, if that's a word, impolite, uh, all these things, we would come bounding in and like nap on their couch while he taught a Bible study. (laughs) Okay, that's gratuitous preparation. And that's what Jesus is tapping into with this image. He's saying, I'm not leaving you. No, 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 no. I'm not leaving you. I'm preparing a place for you. That's different. That's very different. When it feels like God is absent, I want you to grab onto this promise with white knuckles. And remember, perhaps, why he left. Not just that he went, but why he went. Think of it. For the disciples, this would have been absolutely taken by faith, truth. For us who live on the other side of Jesus' completed work here on earth, we know why he left and went ahead. And why he had to say what probably was difficult words, I'm leaving you. Because if he hadn't have left, if he hadn't have gone, if he hadn't have abandoned his disciples, then he would not have died for their sins and yours also. If he had not left, then he would not have been risen on the third day for, for their new life and yours as well. And when I say new life, I don't just mean new beginnings. So that is very much the case. I say new life in the sense that you will not, death will not win in the end in your story. You will have resurrected bodies. This world that Jesus uh, uh, spoke into being will be renewed because of his resurrection. The scriptures say that he is the first blossom of a harvest of resurrection. And you know what? That would not have happened if he had not abandoned, quote unquote, his disciples. He went on ahead of his disciples to defeat their biggest enemy, sin and Satan. And he did on the cross and he mocked Satan on the cross for them and for you. And so it may help when God feels absent, when Jesus feels absent, maybe in your prayers, you're like, Jesus, why can't you just be more present to me? It may help for you to just simply say, ah, that's why you left to give me those things. You're preparing a place for me. He is, he is doing so much and you may not see it. See, he's making the disciples surrender to his promise. And perhaps he's doing the same to you this morning. Jesus doesn't just prepare home for us, but there's also another amazing promise in here. He doesn't just prepare home. He actually previews home today. 
So in your life, we're not just waiting for home. Jesus is so gratuitous in his hospitality. He says, let me think of a way to bring the hospitality in my father's house into the life of my people, even before they come. Do you see it in the text? If you look down, you'll you'll read it. He says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And now look at verse 23 in chapter 14. Verse 23, Jesus answered him. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus doesn't just prepare a home in the future. He makes a home in the present. And guess where that home is? It's in you. If you're you're laying hold of Jesus with empty hands of faith, then Jesus says, where I am, you are. Where you are, I am. Jesus is in you, and you are in Jesus. Jesus has given you a preview of your future home. Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 1, and I'll start in verse 13. Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, or the good news of your salvation, and you believed in Him, guess what happened? It, Paul says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Holy Spirit, verse 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. If we stand to inherit this house that belongs to Jesus and he's preparing a room for us in it, the Holy Spirit is like this time-space machine that takes that house into our present life today in very significant ways. We cry, Abba, Father, today. We don't have to wait. We're in the Father's house. Why? The Holy Spirit. You see it? The Holy Spirit is like, I'm going to take your future home into your your heart. I'm going to transplant it into your heart. Which might help. And it does. It does help. My wife is reading the Harry Potter books for the first time. No spoilers this time. I know I've done that before. There's young years in here. Um, what she's doing, she's experiencing the beauty of the burrows. Do you know the burrows? What's the burrows? That's the Weasley home. The Weasley home. She's experiencing the beauty of the burrows. In book two, Harry, who has been sort of stuffed in a closet his whole life, experiences this amazing hospitality from the Weasleys. And this house is like crooked and it's falling apart, but it is home. It is home. It is so beautiful. Christian scholar Jake Meter, he writes, the most beautiful places of love. He says, are Hogwarts and the Burrow. The Weasley family's home. Both places resist the kind of regimentation and corporatization of place that is so common in the modern world. Do you see that? This broken down, falling apart home as you read it and as it ignites your imagination, and as I read it, I'm like, I want to be somewhere like that always. I want our house to be a burrows. 
888 Timberman Road. Would that be a Burroughs? Please, Jesus, make it happen. It's not perfect. It's falling apart. It's messy. But when people come, they might get a taste of their future home. And that's exactly what you have in Christ. You have a preview. It's messy. It's not perfect. But man, is it home. And you have a home. Because Christ dwells in you. But to have this, you have to surrender to Jesus, right? So you need to trust Him. Even though you don't see it. Even though you can't hold it. Even though He may feel absent. You have to nail to the cross what A.W. Tozer calls the hyphenated sins. The hyphenated sins. Listen, self Righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love. And it's painful to nail those things to the cross, but it is the pathway to life. And when we do, we will experience home. We will. But so long as we kind of, what I'll call, I'll call them building projects, where we try to find home by our own means. Do you have building projects in your life? Like ways in which you're trying to sort of manufacture uh, what you were made for. But today, it could be your actual home. You could actually be trying your hardest to create heaven on earth in your home. You could actually be trying to do that with your job or with whatever plans you have or your hobbies or something. A philosophy, an idea. You are creating home. And what you're doing is you're bypassing or you're circuiting around God's place for you. Instead, I would just say, stop doing that and rest. Put to death the self-sufficiency and rest in Jesus. There's a third promise in this passage I want to talk about before we close up. It's this. If Jesus goes ahead to prepare, and if Jesus actually previews a home, he does a third thing. He, in the end, provides this home by grace. And that's important to talk about. I'm going to talk about it for a minute. He provides this home by grace. In other words, you don't get to earn your way into this house. You're not allowed to earn your way into this house. This is a different house. You know, when I grew up, there was a sort of expectation that you wouldn't get things really dirty or messy in my house. And you may have that understanding with God. You may think, okay, if I'm going to have this rest, if I'm going to be invited into this house, even if Jesus is going to preview it in my life, I better take the mud off my shoes. And I would just love to just preview what, what Jesus is going to say by saying, you can walk into his house with your money shoes. In fact, you're not allowed into his house unless you come with your dirty shoes. Isn't that amazing? He is providing home for you by grace. In verses 4 through 7, we see this play out. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Referring to heaven, referring to his father's house. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, Thomas is the hard realist, isn't he? Whenever you encounter Thomas in the Gospels, he's the hard realist. There are some people I've encountered them in my short life as a pastor that will always, no matter what, no matter how bad my sermon stunk, they would say, good sermon, pastor. They just will. But there are also people who constantly want to just engage. I didn't really understand what you said. Will you help clarify what you said? What about that? What about that? That is Thomas. Thomas wants to know. He could have easily, with the other disciples, just said, yeah, okay, he's talking about his father's house. I don't get that. He's talking about, I know the way. I don't get that. And Thomas just simply goes up to Jesus afterwards. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. A, where are you going? And B, like, how can we get to where you're going if we don't know where you're going and we don't have the way to where you're going? And to that, Jesus says these famous words. Well, 
Thomas, and to all you Thomases, I am the way. I am the way home. I am the way home, Jesus says. And in saying that, he's saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way to God. I am the way home because I am the truth. I am the way home because I am the only living one. All of you are walking dead people apart from Jesus. I'm alive. I am without sin, Jesus says. He says, I am the way to God because I am God in flesh. I am the truth and the life. But, but the big, big, big explosion that was happening in this dialogue was the first word, the way. See, in this, Jesus is not simply saying, hey, um, I'm going to show you the way to home. Now, do what I did. He doesn't say, I'm going to illustrate for you the way home. Now, follow my lead and do the same. He says something far more subversive. He says, no, actually, I am the way. The way is a person, not a plan. The way is a person, not a plan. And we want a plan, don't we? We want a plan. I think Jesus is upturning every religion when he says this. Every religion gives a way, it gives steps, it gives technique, it gives plans to get home. And here Jesus just says, I am, I am, I am, I am home. Come to me, surrender to me. On Saturday, I taught my son Jude how to make tuna noodle. This is a staple in the hack house, okay? Tuna, tuna noodle. If, if our house is going to be the burrows, it's going to have tuna noodle. I'm sorry. And I gave him the steps, and I gave him the ingredients, and I watched him uh, crank this thing out, and he loved it. Just tell me what to do, Dad. Just tell me what to do. And I did. I told him what to do. I gave him a recipe. Like Thomas, so many of us approach our father in that same way. Just tell me what to do, Dad. Just tell me what to do. Please just tell me what to do. And instead of giving a recipe, you know what the Father says? The Father says, I'm giving you my son. Okay? So we have a recipe theology and we have a reception theology. A recipe theology says, just tell me what to do and I'll do it and maybe I'll get home. A reception theology says, I receive what you have done, Jesus. I receive it. And it's your choice which path you choose. Will you spend the rest of your life trying to go home in your own strength? Or will you surrender Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done will you surrender and will you call yourself a follower of the way like the earliest Christians will you rest with the earliest of Christians because you have given up finding your own ways and you are now resting in the way who is Jesus that's the choice that's the choice Did you know the earliest Christians called themselves that? In fact, they didn't call themselves Christians. Uh, enemies of Christ called the earliest believers Christians. Isn't that interesting? What Christians called themselves were followers of the way. Why do you think they called themselves followers of the way? 
They called themselves followers of the way because they knew that Jesus was preparing a home for them. They were followers of the way because they knew that Jesus is previewing home for them. They called themselves followers of the way because they knew that any effort, any any sort of hope of having home, any kind of healing to their homesickness can only come through Jesus and what he has done and nothing that they can do. They were followers of the way. Which means, of course, they were followers of Jesus, who is the way. It's a puzzle to historians um, of religion, especially why so many people embraced the way in those earliest of, of years and centuries. Especially when embracing the way, Jesus meant certain death. And I actually learned this last week. I learned this. Uh, there's a scholar. His name's Larry Hurtado. He's at the University of Edinburgh. And he says that the reason people chose Christ, the reason that people chose the way, the reason why people lovingly and knowingly embraced the title follower of the way, even though they knew following the way meant their death, the reason they did that is because only Jesus, the way, gave them relationship with God. A vital personal relationship with God. And every other religion did not. And guess what? They chose that vital relationship, that personal relationship with the living God over their comfortable life. Are you? Are you? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's follow Him. And so Jesus, we do follow You now. Maybe we've put off following you and we're following you for the first time. We, we just want to. We, we, our, our heart, our longings have now been met in you and if that's the case, we come to you. We stop our own home improvement schemes here in our own life and we now come to you, our true home. Others of us who have been following you, Jesus, for many, many years, many, many decades perhaps, and are still homesickness, still suffer from homesickness. We still feel like there's an absence. You still feel distant or maybe impersonal. Would we in this morning, in this time in relationship to your word, would we respond to your promises by, by, by clinging, by surrendering to you? And would you meet us, Lord? Bring us up. In Jesus' name, amen.